We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a Yes, there's a global health pandemic, and yes, there's climate change, and yes, there's geopolitical strife, but we know the apocalypse is upon us because they were singing Mustafi's name at Bournemouth. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right, Arsenal fans singing Mustafi's name, and in actual support. It was quite a thing here, and to be fair, uh, if that is the last time he plays this season, and it's unclear that that is the case, uh, it's nice to know that he gets to go out. Having heard his name sung, uh, was playing well. And deserve the credit. Good for him. Um, we got an awesome show lined up. Tim and Cliver here. I'll introduce them momentarily. Amy Lawrence is here. She'll be talking about the Academy kids and maybe a little bit about transfers as well uh, at the end of the pod. So, of course, uh, as we are always saying, we want to thank The Athletic for uh, giving us access to some of the best writers and Arsenal people uh, on the planet. And, of course, if you want to sign up for that, you can do it at theathletic.com forward slash arsenalvision. We'd love to have you as a patron. We've got lots of Patreon content planned this week. Uh, but if you don't want to do any of those things, no big deal. Like, honestly, we just love that you're here. We love that we all get to chat. Arsenal, um, and today is a fun day to do it because the FA Cup tie at Bournemouth was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to watch. Maybe the second half was a little dull, but you know what? It more than made up for it uh, in the first half. And we'll be talking about how the kids are all right. I think it is fair to say that our cup runneth over with young talent, and uh, it is uh, wonderful to see. As the kids say, you love to see it. Tim is on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, Luke. Recording a little earlier in the day for me, so the coffee's still still waiting to take effect. So, uh, you know, if I'm not at my sharpest, you won't know the difference. Uh, in any event, let's kick it off with this. So, Tim, I I loved this game, and I you know the second half was maybe a little ugly, and and we just sort of grounded out. But the first half was a delight, and I think with maybe 
a minor exception the last five minutes or so of the half, one of the just best performances we've seen in a long time. Um, you know, I know that there were some good performances in the early stages of the Europa League group um, with some of the young kids shining, but but this was sort of one of the best ones we've seen in a while. And it was, I think, a big night for some of the young kids to sort of reintroduce themselves to the team, like Joe Willick, and we'll get on to him. I'm reminded a little bit of, ironically, an FA Cup tie a couple of years back. We played Southampton away um, after having lost to them in the league, and uh, which we seem to do every season. And then uh, we, we played a, a much-changed 11, as did they. I think it was Ainsley, Ainsley Maitland-Niles only ever like start in central midfield for us, and we really dominated them, and a lot of the kids played well. And in that case, I don't think it... It really uh, was a harbinger of much, but this this felt different. This felt really important. Um, I'm curious for you if watching this game, if it if it's starting to maybe click a little bit that the the academy talent that we have and that the young kids that we have at the club are forming a core group that really does have the potential to be very very special going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the things that we were excited about at the beginning of the season. It wasn't just, it was kind of, there were, there were a couple of phases to the excitement. There was the transfer business, which a lot of people thought was, was broadly quite good. And then there was this kind of, we've, you know, we had this, this kind of tangible set of academy products underpinning that, who I think most of us were kind of realistic to, enough to know, right, the, these guys, if one of them might become a star, um, and at the moment, that looks more like Martinelli than anyone, but that can obviously change. Um, but, you know, we, we've got like a set of academy kids kind of coming through, buttressing the squad a little bit. And that's one of the things we're excited about. But one of the, you know, one of the excitements that just completely ebbed away in the fog of the end of the Emery era when, you know, his goose was cooked and, and yeah, the, t- the team became a bit of a mess. So, you know, Look, I I still don't expect all of them to play perhaps as they did um, against Bournemouth every single time they play because that's not the deal with young players. You've got to put up with the fact that they're going to be a little bit inconsistent. And and you look, Joe Willock, I'd say has been pretty inconsistent this season, and I I kind of accept and expected that he's had really good performances and he's had some some quite indifferent ones. And and Monday night at Bournemouth was a really good one. So and. And even within this game, actually, we we probably get onto this, but we've still got this problem where we can't quite play for 90 minutes at the moment, but we're kind of, we're getting there. We're getting more and more minutes. We're building up a little bit to it. Mm. Um, but yeah, like, so in terms of um, the young players, I, th- I think what's really positive actually about the, the kind of the negative that's turned into a positive is because the league season is not quite a write-off, but as close as we're probably ever going to get to, um, even if the results themselves aren't inconsequential per se, at least the mood around them is not quite as fevered. So I think people at the moment are a bit more accepting of stuff like drawing at home to Sheffield United and drawing away at Crystal Palace, that doesn't cause the same anxiety it used to because people are kind of broadly behind the project, at least for now, and can sense a direction of travel. And so what we can actually do for the rest of the season is really look at some of these kids. And again, I'm not saying throw them all in together at the same time and just like fuck everyone else off because that that doesn't really work either in terms of development but what we can really do you know per your your 
conversation, I think, after the Chelsea uh, podcast al- along this lines we can look at Saka at left back and say okay let's let's give him 10-15 games here let's see what he's got let's see if he can perform consistently and then maybe we don't have to spend 7-8 million on a backup left back perhaps we've got that there let's look at Ainsley Maitland-Niles and say do we need to buy a backup right back is that his position it, can he play in midfield does that then negate the need for another midfielder you know, and and start to just really look at some of these players and see where they fit next year. I I think that's where a lot of the squad is at the moment. We're looking at, um, we're almost looking towards next season already, and what kind of role that 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 some of these players can have. And for someone like Willock, I th- I think it's really, um, I think it's really telling that he was chosen ahead of Danny Sabios, for example, because. I think Arteta's thinking, even if Ceballos doesn't go in January, I think he's very much thinking, well, we're not going to spend 30 to 35, 40 million or whatever it is to buy him from Real Madrid at this stage. So, you know, he's not really in my future plans, but Joe Willock is a player I want to look at and I want to see what he can do in this position. And and, and I think, to be fair, he's making a few decisions like that. He's, he's made the decision actively not to loan Nketiah out again. Um, which is a fairly surprising decision. And, you know, Martinelli, he doesn't have to play Martinelli at the moment. He didn't have to play him at Bournemouth. He had Ozil and Lacazette on the bench, and I I realised that both those players probably need a rest. But there are other players there. Uh, So this isn't entirely driven out of necessity, I don't think. Maybe partially. Mm. Um, I mean, he he could have started Lacazette and said, well, do you know what? Aubameyang's back for the next game anyway. So I'd just give Lacazette one more game. Uh, We haven't played for six days. And then I'll rest him for Burnley. He didn't do that. He wanted to look at Nketiah. So I think there's some projecting forward going on here. And players like Saka and obviously Martinelli and even Nketiah last night getting on the score sheet, that, that's just giving the manager food for thought because he must be thinking about the summer um, already and, and what how he's going to shape this squad. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean... I I think the previous manager would have played Ozil and Lacazette and, you know, probably Torreira and and taken the game very seriously and and been intent on winning it. And I think, you know, Arteta showed tremendous character in saying, I'm going to trust my young kids. Um, This is an opportunity for them to go out and impress. I I realize it's just Bournemouth, but, like, it was just Shrewsbury that that drew Liverpool (laughs) 2-2. You know, like, these things can happen in the Cup. And we did fail to beat Bournemouth the last time we played them. And I realize this was sort of a changed Bournemouth as well, but it's an away game. It's a lot of young players. I mean, between Nketiah, Saka, Willock, Martinelli, Genduzzi. I mean, there's some experience there certainly, but it's very, very young players. Um, and and they all did really well. I think they all acquitted themselves really well. So let's drill into some of the performances, Clive. And, and I guess the first one that we can come to is, is Willock. So... We can only evaluate the performances as we see them. And I think that there is this tendency for everybody to want to puff out their chest and say that they know what's going to happen. No, he's, he's not going to make it. Nelson's not going to make it. Saka could. And Kedia won't. I mean, like, we don't know. Saying we know is crazy because we don't know. We can have suspicions. You know, I, I think we are in the opinion business, all of us, all of us, whether you're on Twitter or Facebook or a podcast or just in your local, we're in the opinion business. And that's great. But I want to judge the performance because I think that's tangible and that's evidentiary so I thought this was a great performance from Willick and I think you can contrast it with what Ozil does in this respect Willick I don't think is a particularly great passer I don't think that he's 
necessarily got the vision, certainly, that Ozil has <clears throat> or the execution to pass, but he's extremely direct, sort of like what Pepe does in a way. He gets the ball and he goes forward. That's his remit. Get the ball, go forward. Drop back, collect the ball, go forward. And I, I think we saw another way for the number 10 in Arteta's system to operate, um, and I thought it was a really interesting contrast with how Ozil operates in that position. And that's not to knock Ozil. It's just to sort of see a different way for it to be done. So how did you rate Willick's performance, and, and in particular, the way it's a different uh, a different approach to to that position for us? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I quite agree it's a 10, per se. I think it's a, Support an attacking... <laughs> Yeah, attacking midfielder. I mean, we spoke about it last week, didn't we? We called it the wingfielder role. Yeah. So when we go in a in a two three five, he's one of the he's the one to the right of the central striker, and Martinelli to the left of the central striker. I think he's got more two way duties, so he's more of a midfielder, and the guy to the left is more of a forward. Right, so Bamiyang does that role in the in the first team per se. Then we overlap with a high left back. Look, look at us talk about a system like we've known it all our lives, and that shows you how... <laughs> how well, it does, isn't it? We talk about a system that we do not even debate on the podcast because it's so clear. It's so well-constructed. Great point. It's so yeah. well-communicated. And we talk about it like if we knew it... I, I didn't know about this two months ago. And I watched Man City play. It wasn't clear to me. You know, how they how they overload wasn't clear to me. It feels so clear. And it's just... Uh, it's a. Uh, a credit to the manager that he's done that, and we understand it, which means the players understand it. And I see Willock in that role, and I see it being two-way. I see him just almost sneaking behind the midfield. And the moment he does, he's off. He's off to the races. And everyone's backing off, and people are running off him. And we looked very good. And I'm conscious of the levels, but I also remember the Bournemouth away game recently, and maybe Tim's got a better view. I remember Dan Gosling doing a bit better than he did yesterday. You know, I thought we we made him look quite good in the other game, and I felt in this game he was um, running around, being boshed off by Gwen and being boshed off by Willock, and, and forced to do running he did not want to do. You know, and so I did like Willock's game. I do like what he can be without knowing what he actually is, and I find myself not caring. What I did see was a player that did the first hour and 15, maybe hour and five really, really well, got moved out to the right-hand side, faded a bit, and maybe could have come off 10 minutes sooner. Mm. On the period where he was on, I thought his selection, pass selection, when to run, when to drive, when to let go of the ball, when to press, when to support press, when to you know disconnect from his markers and create space, he didn't always receive for the half term beautifully like Özil does, but he kept it even though it might be a bit ugly. When it was in an area that he liked and it forced him to roll people and run people, then you could see he was a lot happier doing that. So his development, if we can get him to receive it like you know like Ramsey and Özil can that that smooth sort of half turn, just roll around a corner and he's off. Once he perfects that, he's going to be a danger in between the lines because when he gets it, he's not knocking it off five yards to the right or left. He's saying, come, come and get me. Right? So he's offering a whole new threat. And I think it's going to be quite interesting to see him technically develop. He's obviously got a shot from the edge of the air, which you saw um, at Liverpool. Um, he's not afraid to shift and shoot on the edge of the area. So his potential is quite big. I'm not saying that we need to wrap, build a team around him, but I thought... 
people have doubted him, as they do doubt some younger players. I'm sure you'll come on to a couple later on in the we'll podcast. Get to all of them, yep. Yeah, and I, I think, just as a note, I think sometimes we can play them to a point where they get tired and flatten out. And what Artes has done quite skillfully, I feel, is sit a couple down and they come back in this game. I thought we saw them back to what they used to be. Yeah, you know, you make a really interesting point there, Clive, right? Which is, let's say Aubameyang has three games where he's playing poorly. You know what Aubameyang is, so you don't think, oh, maybe he's no good. But if a 16-year-old, well, not 16-year-old, but if an 18-year-old has three get-bad games, we have a tendency to say he's never making it because we don't know what he is yet. And so we're constantly updating with the new information. And so, you know, progress isn't linear any human development is not linear, right? There's setbacks and then there's bursts forward and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I thought this was a good step forward for Willock. I think the irony for me is that he's athletic and he's powerful and he's strong. And yet I don't know that he's necessarily um, switched on enough defensively. I don't know if his defensive intensity is quite right yet. And I think that that's something that if he could add to his game would make him a really interesting opportunity for selection at that position more regularly. Um, because I thought in some ways with Enkedia and and Willick, maybe I expected our, our press from the front to be a little more effective, and I'm not sure that they were quite as good at it. Now, Lacazette is brilliant at that part of the game, and I think Enkedia, if he watches that, will we'll learn a lot from it. But, can, I, can, I, can I add yeah, one please. small counter to that? Only a small counter. Enkedia and Willock, well, I can't remember the last time they would have completed 90 minutes. So when we see him, we just expect them to just arrive at their top game. I thought they'd done really well to get that amount of football out of them point, on yeah. that game. It's a great point. I think you could see that Eddie was struggling with a little bit of cramp towards the end. Willett was struggling. I thought they blew themselves out for 70 minutes. And I thought, and I think just to bear that in mind, that we expect them to arrive when they haven't really played football for a couple of months or so. Yeah, and by the way, I mean, was it David Luiz in one of the post-match comments made the point, we're not there physically yet? I don't think any of the team is physically where Arteta needs them to be to play his way for 90 minutes yet. And we've seen that be a problem, but you know the job was done uh, in, to a greater extent uh, at halftime in this game, so it didn't really matter. Yeah, I mean, I just think in general it was a really encouraging performance from Willick, though, for a kid who maybe had started to to slip back a little from consideration. So that was great to see. You know, one thing about Arteta and and Clive, you touched on the fact that we know his system now already, just a, a month in by heart. It's so important for the kids. You know, if you want Aubameyang to play wide left one day and, you know, play in a back three system one day and play center forward one day, like, he can do that. You know, he's a 30-year-old experienced professional. For these kids, they need a communicator and they need a consistent instruction that they can follow. And they weren't getting that previously. And now they're getting both. They're getting someone who can communicate effectively and give them a job and give them a clear job. And that doesn't mean they're all going to make it. But I think in order for the young kids to develop, you give them a clear job where they know exactly what's expected of them and you communicate it effectively and then you can see the difference it makes. Um, and I think, Tim, one of the players who just continues to thrive, really in whatever position he's put in, is, is Bukaya Saka. Uh, mm. He is thriving as a fullback right now, although in this system with the way Shaka drops in, and I think this is what's so interesting about Shaka making a three in the first phase of buildup, Saka's just allowed to just bomb forward. Just go. Go, buddy. Mm. We we got this. You go up there and you go basically be a forward. Uh, and the overload on the left seems to be really confusing teams. And once again, credit to Mustafi hitting those big diagonals beautifully 
found Saka time and time and time again in acres of space on the left. I thought Saka's performance was brilliant, and I think the system really lets him emphasize the part of his game he's great at. He created a goal. He scored a goal from positions that you would consider to be more natural to him while playing fullback all game. So how impressed are you individually with Saka and with the way the system seems to give him a platform to thrive? Yeah, I was hugely impressed. This this is a player I've always liked. I've always been interested in. You know, when some of the young players come in and you might flip-flop on... Like, you know, I've flip-flopped on Willock a bit and I'm still, you know, I'm still not sure what he is and where he'll go. Nelson, I've flip-flopped on a little bit. Maitland-Niles, I've kind of done the same. In Ketia, I'm still not sure about. But, you know, sometimes a young player comes through and you think, yes... Yes, this this is the golden child. This is the one I like, and this is the one I will probably defend, even when, um, you know, <laughs> it doesn't deserve defending. And this is this is like the candle I will hold. Um, and I've kind of always felt like that um, with with Bukayo Saka. And actually, I've always been interested in the idea of him as a fullback. And um, I, I'll say now, I'm I'm still interested in the idea of Reese Nelson as a fullback. Um, I think that could work for the same reasons it's working with Saka, yeah. um, because. So the thing is, and I don't know if players of Saka's this age, maybe they realise this better than some of the players that are ten years older than them. That actually fullback is, for want of a better word, it's quite a sexy position now. Like gone are the days when your worst player plays at fullback because you want them vaguely out the way. You know, like players like Danny Alves and Marcelo have completely changed that, in my view. Um, and they, they've brought, I think, maybe a little bit of glamour to the role, um, or, or at least I'm assuming that. Like, I'm 36, right? So I've got no idea what, like, 17, 18-year-old kids think watching watching fullbacks. Maybe they all still do think, no, I want to be a winger. Because this mm. is the thing, right? Players, they always want to play different positions. It's always like, no, I want to play centre-forward. I want to play central midfield. I want to play centre-half. Like, not many players want to go out wide, or if they're out wide, they go, I don't want to be a fullback. I want to be a winger. And it's a I'm lot reminded of, it. of Theo Walcott, who wanted to be a striker until yeah. he got to be a striker and then said, no, no, I'm, I'm a winger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and a lot of it is, I think, just silly kind of status kind of stuff, you know, and you just think, look, just, just play where you're best in the team. Mm. You know, a bit like when Ramsey had that spell on the right. And, and you know, it's just like just in this system just play there because it really works and actually it's still a really prominent role for you it's like yeah you're not playing as a number eight but that's kind of fine because you're still really contributing and I'm looking at Saka at left back and it's funny actually because some of the discussion is still um you know oh he's out of position and and we should push him up on the wing and stuff like that and I'm thinking should we he looks like a really really good fullback to me and he's getting lots of end products from fullback as well. And I think part of that is, yes, because of the way uh, Arteta's system is structured. And like you say, the left back is basically a winger anyway. But what we were doing really cleverly um, in the first half an hour against Bournemouth, Bournemouth changed their formation because they realized this. But we were doing that thing where we were sucking them over to one side of the pitch, mm. almost tilting the pitch, attracting them over to our right-hand side, You know, getting them on Pepe, getting them on, um, on uh, Bellerin, and then just hitting them with the switch. 
Um, and we were doing it left to right as well. Xhaka was doing it nicely. So you've got Mustafi kind of whipping those crossfield balls really nicely. And then you had Xhaka doing it from left to right as well. And we were just like just attracting Bournemouth to us and hitting them with the switch. And we did that time and time again in the first half an hour. And yeah, I thought Saka was tremendous as well. And I um, I don't think we need to obsess about this kind of, oh, he's out of position. Um, he, look, he might yet turn into a left winger, but I really like him at left fullback. And if he keeps playing really well at left fullback, I think we should fucking well play him at left fullback. Like, I don't, I don't quite. Um, it it reminds me of um, what you know when I say like bringing glamour to the fullback role. I read um, an interview with Lucy Bronze who's, you know, probably the best right back in the women's game. And she was talking about that. She was talking about, I want to bring, I want to like show like young girls that fullback is like a really good position because, um, because uh, the England women's team have an idiot for a manager in Phil Neville. And what he thinks, <laughs> what, he, what do you really think? <laughs> <laughs> so he sees Lucy Bronze playing at right back and playing really well. And he goes, Hmm, I should put her in midfield. And it's like, no, you shouldn't, you fucking idiot. She's playing really well at right back. Just keep her at right back. <laughs> and and so that's that's kind of what I'm thinking. And look, this might just be a flash in the pan. He might get found out or whatever, or he might push up the pitch in a few weeks and play really well on the left wing and, and see that his future's there. But I think there's two things. He's producing end products from here. And I think that's maybe because from fullback, you can make those overlapping runs and whip those balls in. And, and I think he's really good at that, you know, that kind of Kalasanach style thing. Um, and I also think it's because he's, he's already established a really good partnership with Martinelli there. And when you've got a good partnership, um, that that's really really important good teams have that good teams have partnerships all over the pitch and then it doesn't matter if you're in your favorite position or if you're in the position that everyone thinks you should be in because that's where they put you on fifa if saka and martinelli really work on the left hand side keep them there mm. if it's if it's great having Xhaka behind them to keep whipping passes into them keep them there we don't have to obsess about like individuals and where exactly they should stand because this is where i think they should stand and uh, to me i i think saka has got the makings of a really really good athletic modern fullback who can get up and down good stand-up tackler he's got the athleticism good at interceptions you know he's he's good on the ball in tight spaces when you give him the ball next to the touchline you know your heart doesn't your heart rate doesn't pick up you know that generally speaking he's going to keep it and he's going to use it and uh yeah so i i you know if, if he keeps playing like this then he, he's playing better in this position than i think i've seen tierney or kolasinac play so far and that might not last again mm. i accept that inconsistency is baked into the equation with young players but i say keep him going there and um you know it it could be another ashley cole or hector bellerin situation yeah i mean just ask matthew debushi what happens when an academy kid makes a claim for for the starting fullback position right i mean you have to go yep. with the person who's earned the the playing time and right now it would be sack i, I the one thing i will say is <clears throat> we're also very clearly overloading the left-hand side with an intention to play yep. Saka further up the pitch. At one point, Hector Bellerin was playing at the top of the D. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Pepe is totally isolated out on the right to some extent. There was there was a funny moment in the game where Bellerin took like one step beyond um, Pepe outside of him, like he was going to overlap. 
and it was like a switch flipped in his brain. He's like, oh, no, I'm not supposed to be there. And he, like, stopped and ran back a little bit. I mean, I I don't think you could be any more clear that the plan is for Bellerin not to overlap Pepe and for Saka and Martinelli to get way up the pitch on the left-hand side and and overload the the deep wings on the left. So, you know, that makes sense mm -hmm. because of Bellerin's current situation as well because he's you know he's coming back from a serious injury and he's had hamstring problems makes perfect sense to moderate his role like that yeah and by the way I think he's starting to look back to his best I thought he was great in this game but I think it's also the point Tim that if theoretically we got to a point where we said okay now we want to flip that and we want Bellerin overlapping and we want to overload the right hand side then maybe you might say now we're going to go with the more naturally defensive Tierney on the left uh, and push Saka back up to a wide forward position, right? You know, and and mm-hmm. sort of ape the Pepe role, so to speak, or however he wants to structure it. I just think that there's a lot of flexibility there. And what's clear to me about Saka is, given the end product he has, whether his development continues to be as a fullback or whether it continues to be as a wide forward, we know when he gets into the attacking third, he can do real damage and be really devastating. And y- you need that, ultimately. I mean, that that is the difference between players making it and not making it is their end product at some level. So... Really exciting to see. Clive, I don't want to freeze you out of the conversation about Saka. Maybe you can just sort of add a little more uh, of your own insight into how you think we were exposing those those weaknesses in the Bournemouth defense. Because what would happen, it seems... Look, Ginduzi was isolated in central midfield. There, were a box of four, um, there was a box of four Bournemouth defenders around him at all times. And in the first half, what was happening is they were sort of keying on him, but we didn't have anybody else in central midfield. And so Shaka could stride out with the ball, or in a lot of cases, Mustafi would stride out with the ball. And like, for example, Willick would drift to the right, and Pepe was on the right, and Ganduzi was marked by two central midfielders, and there was all that space on the left, and Mustafi just kept hitting the uh, the long diagonals in, in Saka, and they couldn't live with it. Or he would break the lines to Willick, which he did really well, uh, I think, for the goal. <clears throat> was it the second goal where, <clears throat> excuse me, Willick, or Enkedia plays the wall pass to Willick, and then... Yeah, yeah that's a second goal. Left. Yeah. So, I mean, do you see the the system really trying to emphasize what, what Tim and I were just discussing and, and has Saka sort of been, been the star of that for you? He's been a beneficiary of it. Uh, he's almost like a bowling ball bowling down that that side. <laughs> yeah. he, just, he just rolls down there. Everything's bouncing off him. And he just rolls past people. He just gets the ball to feet, turns around. And you just see an opposition body on the floor as he just rolls past them, gets across in. I know he had a bad game. I think it might have been against Bournemouth, I think, and where he had a number of crossing opportunities didn't quite go well. Mm. And I said then that he's a very good crosser of the ball, very intelligent crosser of the ball, calm under pressure in the final third. He just had a bad day. And I'm so glad he's proven that, to be correct. When he's in that final third, you think something good is going to happen. And that's a lovely feeling. When a player, you can smell fear around the player sometimes. You can smell fear around their ability on the ball. You just smell it. With him, I, I, my heart rate goes down and I just expect him to deliver. And so I like him a lot. Again, when he was, I've said it before, when he was coming through as England Youth International, he was played at left back a number of times. I know he's had that role at Arsenal for a while, but they tend to play the superstar kids higher up, which is absolutely fine. And um, But... There's no issues. I agree with Tim. There's no issues with him playing that role. What I will say in the two-three-five system, or sometimes it's a three-two-five, till Shaka gets his ass up that left-hand side a little bit. Um, what you do see with five up is you see the ability to retain width. You always have one of Pepe or Saka on the chalk on boots. 
a little bit like a positional system that City have, always have somebody wide. When somebody's really wide, you stretch a defence, you get gaps. But also what it really does, it allows you to switch. It's all around the retention of width. My mate Woz always says that, retention of width, keep your width wide. You've got to be brave to do that, or you've got to have a structure behind it. And guess what? That's what we've got. And the bellowing role in this game, is that's the role that Maitland Lyles was doing. Bellerin carried it nicely a couple of times a game, which is a, something I've forgotten that he does so well. And he really does challenge people that he don't go beyond, just pop it off. You know, pop it off to one of your five and we go from there. So, again, he's very good in transition because he's got full-back speed one-on-one so he doesn't look so vulnerable on the break. And unless people start dropping it into our box, the structure looks really, really good. So, retention of width allows us to switch. You can see the future, can't you, with um, distributing for, uh, centre-backs distributors in centre midfield which allows you to hit the positions on the pitch that's Guardiola position 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 can you stay in your square can you own that can you own that zone and drive out of there I think it's going to be interesting to see how we I don't wish to see people go but how we upgrade certain positions and what type of attributes those players come in with the two centre backs we've been linked with they're passing centre backs now, distributors. We've obviously got Louise. Socrates may struggle in that structure going forward. And funny enough, Mustafi Sean in that guard because his distribution has always been very, very good. So, well, except against Chelsea when he's for facing, whatever the reason. When he's, <laughs> whatever the reason. When he's facing, when he's facing the right way, I mean, <laughs> the right way. So, um, but let's be honest. We all know he's he can pass through those lines really, really smartly, right? So, um, so he now feels a little bit more confident because he's got a role to play, and so uh, he and he had a. Well, the crowd told him he did have had a decent game last night, which I thought was really, really nice. Yeah, classy. It was nice to see. Real quick, stay with you, uh, Clive, just for a second. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Uh, and Kenya had sort of the Aubameyang game, in a way. Um, I'm not sure he was super involved. He ran a lot into spaces that are hurtful without really doing a whole hell of a lot, but he does get on the end of a nice cross from Saka into the corridor of uncertainty, and he, and he slams it home for the, the goal that winds up winning us the game. Um, I call it the Aubameyang game, in a way, because I'm not sure he did a lot else, and it's sort of hard to evaluate this game for him. I will say that his running creates a threat that is different to what Lacazette does. I don't think he pressed particularly as well, although you did bring up the good point that, look, he hasn't played a ton of football, and and he would have tired pretty quickly. But uh, do you have any just sort of quick thoughts on on the impact he made in this game? Because honestly, Enkedi is one of those players who I have to admit, I've never been totally convinced he'd make it, or at least... You know, maybe make it in a in a limited squad role capacity, but I've never been sure. And I was really trying to watch him in this game. Unfortunately, the camera angle at Bournemouth is such that you can see about you know three yards of the pitch at any given time. Um, do you, Do you have any insight into into his performance and maybe whether you think he has more of a role to play? So I've never, you know, I'm fifty fifty on Eddie, but it's not, that's that's not important really, but. Maybe in the old school four two three one where he's a lone forward, where he's got to keep loads of people busy on his own. I think he struggles with that. He's, I call it Jermaine Defoe syndrome. Can you be a lone forward for a top team consistently? And it hasn't always worked out for him. And so when he went to Leeds, Bamford's physicality and his size in their system, which is a four one four one, he wasn't suited to that. But in our build-up with the two three five, where he's got Martinelli and he's got Willock outside him quite close. Suddenly he's not super isolated all of the time and he can, they call it set upset and through. You upset to him, he sets the ball, 
to one of Martinelli or Willock, and they set they go through the lines on the second phase. Right? That's the that's the playing style. Upset through. Right. So he does that very, very well. It got me thinking about that centre forward role going forward. And I'm thinking, okay, we we're, we're criticizing Lacazette a little bit because it's not a spectacular role. It's more of a pivotal role, a setting role, a pressing role, quite an industrial role. Right? But he managed to get a, a passing lane and score his goal. So we're looking at him in comparison to Lacazette and people are debating. But I look at that role and I think, okay, what do we need going forward for that role? Is it an Young role? Should he take that role? Or do we lose some of the danger and the, and the ability to drive him from the side and shoot off your right foot? Not sure. Do we need something different in that role? Do we need, you know, if you think about upgrade, do we need a taller person in that role, a penalty box killer in that role, somebody to really be a bit more physical in that role? And I'm just wondering how that role will develop next season. Is it Lacazette's role to own and get a new contract and that's it? Will Eddie be able, in this system, I think Eddie will be able to underpin whoever's the, the primary person. Is that a role where you want Aubameyang to disappear into crowd scenes and we lose his ability to travel and, and see the play and arrive in the box at the right time? Or will we get more out of Aubameyang in his later years if he's much more central rather than tracking fullbacks on on going the other way? I do think it's going to be interesting to see how we develop that nine connection role in the in the middle of the five. And I'm not sh- I'm not hundred percent sure. I just threw out a few options there, but we may have to yeah. accept it's not spectacular. It's not spectacular. It's a working role, and the spectacular people are all around that individual pivot. Mm, yeah, I mean, I would love to see Aubameyang playing center forward with the front four that we had in this game. You know, with Martinelli on one side, Pepe on the other, and Willock behind him. There's just there's a lot of running power in there. Um, and you know, I want I want to point one thing out about Enkedia's goal. Martinelli is not short of any praise right now, but his run makes that goal for for Enkedia. And to some extent, I, I don't think Lacazette has benefited from these kinds of runs, uh, and Aubameyang certainly would. Martinelli makes the near post run, darts to the near post, and I actually think Saka. Maybe that was the pass that was on at first. I thought he was going to try to get it to him, but in fact, he goes behind him uh, to Nketiah. But that Martinelli near post run pulls Ake with him. And that's why there's so much space in the center of the box for Nketiah to finish it. And Martinelli's running is just so, so intelligent. And he's not just going to get goals. He's going to get goals for other players by pulling defenders out of position the way he did with that run. And Tim, um, you know, I'm not convinced that if Gilberto Silva was at... Arsenal right now that the fans would like him. I We just mm-hmm. have a weird relationship with central midfielders right now. I don't know that we know what they're necessarily supposed to do. Um, we like tackly guys like Torreira. You know, we like goal scoring guys like Ramsey, understandably. But we don't seem to love guys like Ganduzi who do everything else. I think he was man of the match in this game. Now, admittedly, he's shown the most in a half where we struggled the most. And that may be why, you know, he's not getting more attention for this. But Five dribbles, one really nice shot, 91% passing on 64 passes played, four tackles and interception, two clearances, fouled twice, committed three, um, and fouled a few more times I don't think he got. I don't think people love that he's spiky and winds people up. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, I think there was a sense in this game maybe that, like, why are you trying to get them angry? Like, they're they're trying to capitulate. Just let them capitulate. And I have to admit, I, I am sympathetic to that view. I feel that we pulled them back into the game by making them angry. (laughs) <laughs> where they were just ready to yeah. roll over for us. But 
you know, I mean, Ganduzi was operating basically as a one-man midfield, and as the game wore on, he just showed the ability to collect, turn, drive past defenders. You know, he he is pre- he is becoming increasingly press resistant. He seems to have this sort of understanding of where the ball is going to go, when to step up, pinch up, and and break up play versus when to drop in. I thought this was a great game, and he had a couple absolutely crucial clearances in the second half. By the way, deep in our box, um, when mm. they were putting us under a little bit of pressure. For me, a fantastic Enduzi performance and a reminder that, you know, just because he's played, you know, 2,000 minutes, well, will be 2,000 minutes in consecutive seasons as a teenager, let's not write him off for a you know, 20-year-old. Um, were you as impressed by what he did in this game? Yeah, yeah, very. And I, and I think what we've done a little bit is, again, just moderated his role a bit, or not so much moderated his role, but moderated some of the distance um, he needed to cover. So he was very much in that kind of right half space and not you know under emery where it was just like go and be a one-man tornado um it was very much this is your area of the pitch you know kind of stay fairly close to hector bellerin uh granite jack is over on the left but sometimes he'll drop in so you need to move you know shuffle across a bit more centrally and i think maybe we saw from him some of the things that you maybe don't get from Torreira in that role because I think against Sheffield United, my issue with the setup was that it was Torreira that was left on his own in the middle. And it was just, it was too much of a hole um, for me, particularly because Torreira is a much more reactive type of midfielder. And if you're looking to progress the game, that that's not his forte. I think he's better at it than people think, but it's still not his forte. Yeah. Whereas Gendouzi is much more able to kind of just shuffle away from someone. He's he's really good at kind of just wriggling away from pressure, and he he, he has a bit more of a passing range on him as well. Um, and and maybe he's not as defensively switched on as Torreira, but once he's in a duel, I think he's good. That's the thing. He's not. He's not bad at, at tackling or stopping opponents. It's just maybe he doesn't have... Um, I'm not even sure it's positional sense of Torreira so much as Torreira's just it, it, perhaps a bit more agile and just gets over to danger, puts the fire out, gets rid of the ball quickly. I, I don't think Genduzi quite has that, but when he is in the area of danger, I think he's very effective. And like you say, because he's so competitive, he's he's kind of good with those clearances, particularly on the edge of the box. And he's good at... He is quite good as well at doing those fouls that aren't quite fouls. Um, he's good at doing fouls that are definitely fouls, don't get me wrong, but he's quite good at, you know, ball goes up in the air on the edge of the area and just good at just leaning into the player and doing enough so that it's not a foul, but you're kind of impeding the opponent. And yeah, his particularly as the, as the game drew on and Bournemouth grew into the game, his ability to kind of wriggle away from pressure and draw fouls was, was really, really valuable. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I I thought he was absolutely terrific. And, and I think it's a little bit different strokes for different folks as to who plays there. But um, yeah, he, he showed us some things that perhaps we, we just don't quite get from Torreira. Um, in that role and and you know he's 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 put himself back on the map again I think because I think it was right for Arteta to sit him down for a bit I think we were all of that mind before Arteta was was kind of um was appointed I think we were all of the mind that perhaps Genduzi just needed four or five games on the bench and he's had that and you know come back into the team and yeah, I I thought he was terrific. I I thought he dominated his space. Mm. Um, he was he wasn't trying to be everywhere. 
Um, you know, he wasn't trying to be up front and all things to all men and at centre back. He just he had his little area of the pitch. He shuffled across when he needed to, but largely just over on that right hand side, um, he was you know he provided real support for for Bellerin and for Pepe as well because we we know that's one of the things Gendouzi's quite good at and something he did a lot um, under Emery was just shuffle over to the slightly wide space and particularly when you've got someone like Pepe who's not hugely intense off the ball that's um, that that that's very valuable and he just blocks some of those passing lanes I think quite nicely yeah and I mean look I saw a lot of comments sort of before the game that are like when are we going to learn that the Shaka Gendouzi midfield doesn't work but that's not really how it operated, at least not in the first phase of play, right? Because Shaka drops in and makes that three, and Ganduzi is sort of alone in front of the the back three. But Shaka and Mustafi had a lot of responsibility for sort of striding out and distributing. And then as the game wore on, Ganduzi found more space as, as Bournemouth tried to push forward, and he was able to bypass some of their defensive pressure. So I, you know, it operates a little differently in in Arteta's system. And well, Clive, let, let me just quickly ask you. I mean, do you do you think this is sort of just a little bit of a reminder about Genduzzi's qualities and and how he gives us something in central midfield that neither Shaka nor Torreira precisely uh, reproduce? He gives us something else. I think. Um, Did you agree that he was great, or are you a little? Yeah, I uh, think he was. Ma- I think okay. he was. Ma- I think he was man of the match. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought he led the team. And when we were. I thought we started off very, very good. It was all easy. Bournemouth stood off stupidly. We played we played them to death. And then we got a bit sloppy for half-time. Shaka tried just a couple of square passes. It just encouraged them onto us a little bit. And then we started to just play in a contained way. And then at that point, I felt we were playing in areas a little bit further away from their goal. And that's when Guendouzi came into it for me. And, and what I really like, I always like, I like players that recognize the stress of the person in possession and put themselves out there to give them an option and he did that a lot and yeah i thought he attracted people to him i thought he played the referee beautifully i thought he pulled off a lovely nutmeg just to embarrass people he then smashed somebody in the head which i also liked after he took out i think saka and then he went through gosling and said no you don't do that take one got to be careful with the cameras but i still liked it the fact that he's imposing himself and I thought he did really, really well in the ugly part of the game. And I also, a big fan of Torreira, I just think Torreira is better at it, uh, faster at it. You have to remember this game is like a, it's not a 10 out of 10 heavy rock, high intensity game. It was slightly lower than that, apart from a few periods towards the end. And I felt that suited Granduzzi's style. Um, if we're playing against a top team, a top level, I do still prefer Torreira's ability to reach a higher level, a higher intensity and a higher speed in the collisions. But every game's different. I thought in this game, I thought he did really, really well. And I think that role suited him more than the than the Shaka role does, if you know what I mean, slightly to the left, where I think he wants to be in the middle. His personality wants to be central. It's a different style to Torreira, but... Maybe it suits him being right in the middle of the action, making it all about him. It just seems to suit him. And it's like, I saw loads of people on Twitter saying, I would absolutely hate him if he played for the opposition, but he plays for us, so it's okay. Yeah, he's and you know, people forget. I mean, Cesc Fabregas was spiky as hell. By the way, I'm not saying he's Cesc Fabregas. Like, anytime you invoke that name, I think people want to make the point that they're not the same player. They're clearly not the same player. Um, but yeah, it is, it is definitely the case that I think some of these 
young players who come through with big talent and big potential also have big personality. You need to. Um, Seskat it as well. Clive, let me stay with you just for a second. I don't want to overemphasize it. I think he's under a lot of scrutiny, and some of it is not deserved, in my opinion. But it's not quite happening for Pepe. He had another moment in this game where he beat three different guys off the dribble, got into the box. I thought he was going to sort of pass it into the side netting on the far side. He went near post and sort of... Um, just kind of snapped at it. He he didn't really give it that that quality curled finish that he can do. I I don't know that he necessarily has the easiest job right now because of the way we're using Bellerin. He has to beat, always has to beat two men if he's going to do much. And I think, and this is just me speculating, that maybe Arteta told him to keep it a little simpler to try to simplify his game because I noticed in this game he did more you know, simple layoffs to Bellerin, simple layoffs to Wilk, just giving the easy pass. And and there were fewer instances where he tried to beat uh, beat his man off the dribble. So maybe he was either just playing within himself because he, he didn't have the confidence or maybe because Arteta told him, hey, don't worry about it, just give the easy pass. I'm not sure, you know, how, how to interpret that. But I still rate him highly. I still think what he does is special. And I still think playing on that right side where he doesn't have the overload and the overlap uh, would be a challenge for anyone we put in that position. I don't see anyone necessarily thriving in that way. Am I being overly generous to him? Uh, he, I, I do feel I can't sit here and spend the last few years criticizing Mesa um, Azul for sometimes poor body language and intensity and not note that you look at him and think you could do a bit more, mate. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. um, I think you could do a bit more. I do think his role on the outside just restrict him because for a player that can go multiple ways to make sure he can he sort of restricts his ability to move off the dribble but I also think he just needs to develop that combination with the player inside which is Willock Willock is a bit more direct he drove away from him so on the I think it might have been the first goal I think it was Pepe that got the ball deep he accelerated the play he did a difficult shake and move and pass and that allowed Willock to sort of turn the play and start to rotate to go towards the left. If you looked at it, there was a return pass to Pepe through the lines if he wanted it, right? So he started to move, he accelerated the move, he spun off his man. I think the development for him is not what he does on the ball, but it's how he drives off the ball. Mm. I think if he can start to run through lines, I think he'll be very, very dangerous because when he arrives in the box, I think he's got an idea what he does. So developing. That we all see him dribble, stop, stop the ball, fend people off, keep it safe side, turn around, beat a man, pop it. Where well, we know you can do that, but once it's gone, your off the ball movement needs to improve. It needs to be a bit more Martinelli like, a bit more Bamiang like. Can you arrive in those spots in the box for the tap ins? Can you run through lines? And I think once he adds that aggression to his game, which will come with fitness, um, I think he will be a top top player in this game. He just did what he had to do. He, he kept it, attracted people, and that allowed the overload. And the tilting that Tim spoke to was caused by the fact you can't leave him one-on-one. you got to double up, which means someone else is going to be free. And that's how it works. And we use that really smartly by switching out to left-hand side. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, I think there are certain players who, even if it's not totally happening for them, add things in your team that you need and that are dangerous and that are special, and so you keep them in there for those things. And I do think that Pepe's escapability and his dribbling... It it creates a different kind of problem. I mean, uh, Tim in the in the what was it twenty two pass move? Yeah, twenty two passes for the goal. Pepe has a couple really important moments in that goal. It starts with him sort of wriggling out of danger uh, on the right wing up against the touchline, isolated all by himself. There's another moment where it, it comes back. You know, sw- the move had a few 
movements um, from left to right and right to left. But, I mean, do you get the sense that Pepe is still adding enough with his dribbling and, and some of the other things he does that we just need to be patient and, and let it happen for him? Yeah, I, he, he's not quite, is he? He's not quite at the moment. I was I was thinking this, actually, when you were discussing Nketiah and, uh, you know, because I, I still, I know this is a harsh thing to say when he scored, but I still have my doubts that he's an Arsenal striker. I think he can he can be a really good striker, whether whether that will be for Arsenal. I'm, I'm still not sure because my thing with Nketiah, right, is does he do enough um and if a striker you know is his link play good is it are, you know are his partnerships is his passing is his hold up play I, I don't think any of those things are there and if those things aren't there like those things aren't really there in a bamiyang but he scores 30 goals a season so it doesn't matter um you know if if you have if you don't bring much else to the party you got to have a whole shitload of end product and i think it's similar for pepe i'm like i'm quite relaxed with the idea that he's gonna be at at this particular moment in time and hopefully time and rhythm and everything else will iron this out that he is just going to be a little bit frustrating he is going to have times where he tries to beat three guys it doesn't quite come off we lose the ball and you go oh for fuck's sake but once or twice a game he'll do it he'll beat those players and and so the thing is, where I see him at the moment is those those players who perhaps lose the ball a bit too often, perhaps aren't great with the structure. And I agree with what you're saying, by the way. He's kind of he's kind of isolated in this structure, and that's obviously because Arteta thinks he can cope with that, and that's that's a sign of that Arteta rates him that he'd rather have. Um, Pepe doing that than say Martinelli and Saka he's thinking right okay if I leave Pepe on his own he's he's going to be all right maybe he won't be at his maximum but he'll do okay but but where I see Pepe on the axis at the moment is is he going to be like Alexis Sanchez and yes lose the ball a shitload but score and create 30 goals a season so it doesn't matter or is he going to be like Arshavin who you know loses the ball a shitload and doesn't contribute defensively and just doesn't quite do it often enough for you to think, yeah, that's worthwhile having in my team. You know, there's, I I think he's on that cusp at the moment. Um, And and I wouldn't make any panic decisions at the moment. I don't think he's playing terribly. I don't think, I don't think he's costly to us at the moment, but I I think the end product has to like he has to raise the end product um a little bit even given that he's a little bit isolated and you know and and that's that's kind of fine i i didn't see him at lille but i imagine he was maybe a little bit isolated for lille as well it's just that they had bigger spaces to play in so um yeah it's one of those things that i'm not i'm not massively panicked about and look in terms of his um, adaption as well. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm concerned, that started all over again um, because you know what he came into un- under Emery was was not really a team. That, yeah, and he didn't it's play almost much like <laughs> yeah, that that's like a false start, right? Just like it was a false start for the young players, um, and it was a false start for Tierney for different reasons, and a false start for Sabios and indeed that might be the end for Sabios. you know there's a lot of false starts going on for these players so he's almost starting again and this is his adaption period again so I'm you know I'm, I'm not unhappy with him at the moment but 
you know, essentially what I'm saying is that he's a bit of a luxury player, which is fine. Neymar's a luxury player. Messi is a luxury player. That's fine. But when you're a luxury player, you've got to have the end product. Yeah, and, it's um, like it's like Ozil, right? You can't you can't have two assists yeah. or zero assists or whatever the hell he's on this season if if you're a luxury player, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. and and that's that's the kind of the 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 tightrope at the moment that Pepe is on. Yeah, the, the only difference I would say is that I think certain skills like dribbling can add something to your team that that is almost in and of itself as valuable as end product in yeah. some ways. Look at Adama Traore and the way he changes the the calculus for defenses and how they have to defend Wolves. I, I want to bring Clyde back in. And I'll just make the point too. It's always sliding doors with Pepe. I feel because. When Willock turns and drives at the defense and, and ultimately winds up creating the goal, the 22-pass goal um, for Saka, I think he gives the ball too late. And I, that's not a critical thing. Like, look, the, the goal still happens. It's great work by Willock. But the slip-through ball is on for Pepe when he turns and runs at defenses, and Pepe makes a great run. And Willock doesn't really see it. He's just staring down Martinelli the whole time and then gives it to Martinelli. Great worked out, no problem. But... Under a different circumstance, maybe Pepe gets slipped in there and he scores. It's just one of those things. Clive, I, I know you have to run, but do you want a quick uh, coda on the Pepe conversation? Yeah, I, I've, I've had this theory. You know, you heard me say it. Can he play the role inside? So it's the Elza role, the Willock role. Can he come one in and be part of the build-up? Because I think his ability to receive it turnaround is is top, top class. Sometimes on the outside, I think he might need something else. So would a Martinelli be good out on the right-hand side, you know, working hard on that touchline, using his ability to do exactly what I spoke about earlier, which is running off the ball. When we get it second phase, he will run through. He will arrive on the back stick. And I think Pepe's personality is to receive it, create movements for the next pass or the next shot. So I actually think he's more of a creator finisher than a than a, a winger that really wants to spend all his time out there. And I always revert back to the video, the TIFO football video that came out last year, April, speaking about Pepe and his role. And they said, if you whoever gets him, they've got to allow him a freedom to be creative. And if you look at all the videos of him, there's a creative side, not just a goal side. And I think we'll see more of him when he is that number 10 player. I really believe that. We need to get him off the sides allow more industrial players to play off the side and then make sure we get our super talent on this one step inside. And also he's got ability to shoot, pass and create. So yeah, yeah I, that's my future upgrade for him when the moment is right. Yeah, I mean, I could also see him playing center forward in some situations. I also think if we gave the right-sided fullback the permission to overlap him, then I think it's a totally different situation. You can't defend him one-on-one. Um, but right now he's in a crowd scene constantly. And, uh, you know, you're only going to win those those dribbles so many times. So uh, Clive has to run. Tim, I'm going to keep you around for just another minute, if you don't mind, because I, I just sure. want to finish yeah. on a couple of things. Uh, Clive's on Twitter at ClivePFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Uh, by the way, as I'm saying goodbye to Clive, just mentioned our Project 36, The Return, um, four games left in that. There's still time to go there and uh, adjust your scores and predictions if you want. Remember, with this one, we're letting you update those with the new information at your fingertips. So if you want to go to the Project 36 Return and... Uh, and adjust your predictions, there is a shirt up for grabs for that. So, Tim, um, final, just real quick takeaways here. Look, Mustafi did great. Really happy for him. I- I'm not sure I'm going to buy a Mustafi redemption arc because I still think that the-, the mistakes that are in him are more than we should and can tolerate on a regular basis. But he gets injured. Maybe it's just a 
a pull, maybe it's a rupture. Whatever the case is, it exacerbates an already significant problem at center back. And part of the reason for me that it's a significant problem is not just that all we have now are two 30-plus-year-old central defenders and Rob Holding. It's that Rob Holding still looks miles away from being ready. He, he did get on in this game. I don't think he looked great. I do think he was at fault for their goal. Um, I get it. Look, he's a young guy just coming back from a long-term injury after having only really just started to develop into being a first-team player when he got injured, so it's even harder. But you still have to evaluate the situation, and for me, the situation is Rob Holding doesn't quite look close. Do you have the same assessment? Uh, yeah, yeah. He had um, he actually had one really good moment uh, near the halfway line, actually, where he kind of he got in a duel and, and he won a couple of tackles. Mm. And um, to be quite honest, it was all going on at the other end for me, so I didn't I didn't have a fantastic vista of uh, of the Bournemouth goal or. Or, and and you know there were a lot of balls coming into our box at that time and and my perspective on it wasn't great but yeah I mean look he had, Mustafi's been playing for a reason right and um, and it's because Holding's not quite there yet I think what people don't understand with cruciate ligament injuries and I think it's worth like explaining this a little bit um, you know I've never had one myself but. Um, just like from talking to a couple of the players on the women's team who've who've had them, that the problem is not usually the injury in and of itself. Like the cruciate ligament heals okay. That's not the problem. The problem is that after surgery, they're sat on the couch for six weeks and they can't move. Yeah. And what happens is their muscle mass deteriorates and it deteriorates quickly when you're a professional athlete that trains every single day and goes to the gym every single day and you drop that down to nothing all your muscle goes and that's the problem you're building your muscles up from zero to premier league elite athlete and that takes a long time to do that's where the problem comes that's why you get muscle injuries and actually it's it's the muscles tiring that then makes the um like the the likelihood of recurrence higher because your movements change and if you jump and you're a bit tired your landings are a bit so it's actually not the cruciate ligament itself that is the issue it's building that muscle back up and you know we're seeing it with Bellerin um, as well, and he's you know it's it's over a year since the injury. He's been back for months, but not at the level. And it will be the same for Holding. And he's you know he had a secondary knee injury as well, so it, it is entirely understandable. And I think a lot of supporters have to get over the idea that once a player comes back, that's it, they're back. Like. Um, I, I spoke to uh, Danielle Carter, who's a forward from the women's team last year after her first game back. Uh, unfortunately, she re-ruptured her cruciate ligament a couple of months later. But when I, I was speaking to her about her re- rehabilitation and she said, my rehabilitation is not over. Um, this is like this is another mm. step. It's a significant step. But my rehab is continuing just because I'm playing again. That process hasn't stopped. And so I think we, you know, j- just as an explainer and, and probably a, a long-winded one, there's, there's <laughs> sure, quite a lot that, that, that goes into that. So no, Rob Holding 
doesn't isn't quite going to look himself and he probably won't for a few games it's one of those catch 22s as well where he'll probably need a few games to get into his stride but whether he's fit enough to have a like a run of games you know we've had to manage that situation with Bellerin quite carefully and now he's had two three games in a row and you know once holding gets there then maybe we can make more of a judgment but there's a reason that Mustafi has been playing and I don't think it's because Arteta thinks that he's a better or more reliable defender on the whole than Rob Holding is. It's because he's he's not quite fit enough yet and understandably so. I think that's well within the normal timeline of recovery from from you know what was quite a complicated ACL injury. Yeah. No, that's that's all well said and good circumspection and I think we should panic and Rob Holding should probably just be dropped. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, th- I think you've nailed it. But, but Tim, that still leads to the inexorable point that we don't have center backs right now and we need them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yep. I don't care what you think we have left to play for this season. You cannot have Louise, Socrates, and a not-ready Holding as yeah. your only center backs, plus, I guess, Granite Shack. Like, this, this is, it's just not acceptable. And, I mean... We're probably into the quarterfinals. I mean, I don't want to brush aside Pompey. That's not fair. I mean, may, maybe they could do something. But we, we may well be in the quarterfinal of the FA Cup. One of Chelsea or Liverpool will likely be going out in the next round. Um, the Europa League is always a possibility, and it, it offers Champions League, as we constantly point out. So, like, we have things to play for, and this won't stand. Like, the club has to move now and do yeah. something at center back, whether it's this Mari character or someone else. I mean, since you're here, do you want to quickly comment about Pablo Mari? Yeah, sure. So uh, this is um, like he's good. He's fine. Um, he this this is a a chamber. If it goes through, this is a chambers Mustafi level. Uh, so or, or rather, it's a replacement for them. Like this guy is not, I think, going to revolutionise our defence or solve all our problems or anything like that. It it's it's a warm body that can play centre back. He's left footed. Flamengo play broadly similarly to the way that Arteta wants Arsenal to play. Um, They have Felipe Luis at left back, a brilliant left back, unbelievably underrated left back, um, even at the age of 34 at the moment. And for Flamengo, Felipe Luis flies up and down that left-hand side, a bit like um, Saka and Kolasinac do for us. So he's used to kind of covering that left half space. He plays the ball well off of his left foot. He's not a world beater. You know, he's 26 and you can look at the clubs he's been at. He's doing all right at Flamengo. There's perhaps a concern that the thing is Flamengo are miles ahead of all of the domestic competition. So, um, and it, well, the continental competition, they're, they're the best team in South America by some distance. So there's a question there about whether he really comes under enough pressure as a defender in quite an inferior league in the Brazil Aral. But um, I like, I don't think it'd be a bad signing. I, I think the club are perhaps wise to go, uh, let's go loan with an option to buy just in case. Um, They might have to change their plans on that now, but I think that made a certain amount of sense. I I, I think it would, if it goes through, it will be an expedient signing that makes a fair amount of sense. It's a guy who's 26, he's not a kid, he can slot in and he can probably do the job that Callum Chambers would have been doing for us, for example, and... You know, he's not Mustafi. So um, it's one of those, it would have been a fairly expedient signing. I'm not going to tell you it would have been, 
hugely exciting, but neither do I think that he would have been an absolute disaster area. The only other thing I'll say quickly is go and watch a video of him if you've got the time, because his frame, if not his style overall, is unbelievably similar to Per Mertesacker. He's about six foot six and he's all legs and he's a stand up tackler. He never goes to ground. And he he does that that thing that Mertesacker used to do, you know, the go go gadget legs thing. Mm And uh, he does those interceptions very nicely where you don't think he's got any chance of getting the ball. And then he extends that left leg about 20 feet and gets there. That's that that's very much his style. But um, he's he, he's not quick. And perhaps that's a concern. Yeah. I mean, we have to do something, though, right? Like, like, <clears throat> yeah, I don't even know if it, I think we're in a beggars can't be choosers territory now. Right. There, there just has yep. to be someone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and 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 yeah, if if it comes to the stage where we have to go obligation to buy with Mari, or we have to cough up a bit more money, I mean, it's not as much as I don't want Arsenal to waste money. Th- this is like um, a Mustafi or Chambers level signing, but it's a lot cheaper than both of those were. It's not thirty million on Mustafi. This is we're talking seven, eight million pounds, which is, you know, for, for Arsenal, even if they don't have an awful lot of money at the moment, that that's not that's not going to... Like, if we sign someone for £7 million and it doesn't quite work out, that's not going to hamstring us. W- um, would you say... I mean, the issue is wages, right? Because, like, you look at... at yeah. play, like, Gabriel came in and we shifted him pretty easily. Kolasinac, yeah. we can't move. You know, Mustafi, we can't move. So as long as, as, long as he's on wages that are reasonable, yep. uh, you know, we, we, this is not an amount of money we have to worry about. Yeah, in fact, I think Gabriel is is a, is a better that that's a better um, kind of. This is a guy who'll be third or fourth choice. Maybe he can challenge to be first choice. He'll be on that level of transfer fee, that level of wages. And you're exactly right. He's Spanish as well. There'll be plenty of Spanish. If if in eighteen months it hasn't worked, there will be plenty of Spanish clubs uh, he can go to. He's been to South America now. He's got a reputation over there. He could probably go back to Flamengo if that's what he wants to do in 18 months' time. I, I, I make you right. He's 26 as well. This this is not someone that we will be lumbered with for years and years on huge wages that we can't shift. Yeah. I agree. And, and under the circumstances, sometimes you have to do things that wouldn't be your first choice. I mean, I, look, squad building is important, and, and you can never take your eye off the ball of what you're trying to build. But you have to make it through a season. Like, sometimes yeah, yeah. you don't have a choice. So, hopefully we, we get something done. I mean, in your estimation, do you believe a centre-back or two, ideally, will come in before the end of the window? I do, yes. Okay. I think one of... I, I don't know which one. I think one of the balls that's currently in the air will drop. I don't know which one, but I do think they'll get it done. I keep waiting for mine to drop as well. Um, And then, <laughs> as far as Ceballos, do you think he'll leave? <laughs> Um, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I think that he will be asking that question and saying, can I go now? It's just a case of whether the club sanction it. Um, when I was at the press, I was at Arteta's press conference on Friday. He was very lukewarm on Ceballos. One of the things, one of the interesting answers to his, to one of the questions, he was asked about a new defender and he said, yeah, the club are, tr- are trying to do that. And, um, you know, he made, I can't remember the exact wording, but like he made reference to other positions effectively, you know, you're saying like depending on the market. And I just wondered if he meant, well, if we can get someone in, maybe we'll let Sabios go. Mm -hmm. He was very lukewarm when he was questioned about Sabios and, 
yeah, I, I think with like the Euros coming up, I, I'm certain he'll want to go. It's just a case of whether it will happen. Yeah, that's how I read his comments as well. Well, I think we can leave it there because Amy's coming up to talk about the Academy kids and uh, to talk about transfers as well. So there's still more to come, but Tim's on Twitter at Stoberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. All right, we'll take a really quick break uh, for a little fun music, and then we'll be back with Amy. Stay with us. delighted to have Amy Lawrence back on the pod. You can find her on Twitter at AmyLawrence71. You can read her at The Athletic, which of course you should be doing uh, using our promo code, of course, theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. And most importantly, you should be reading her phenomenal book, 89, available at greater booksellers everywhere. Again, the book is 89, and I can tell you it is phenomenal. And once again, hello, Amy. Hi, Elliot. How are you doing? Yeah, great. It's uh, it's good to chat with you. I think... Um, Two topics that we sort of wanted to cover. We'll talk transfers maybe at the tail end for the hashtag clicks. But let's start by talking about uh, the kids. The kids are all right, as they say. And obviously the Bournemouth game, just another example that there's a lot of talent uh, at the club right now at the youth ranks. And I, I think, you know, we, we sort of remember with fondness uh, Project Youth under Arsene Wenger after the move to the Emirates. And, and it was successful in many ways. I'm not sure even at the height of of that movement that there was the amount of talent, uh, young talent at the club that there is now. I mean, certainly players like Cesc Fabregas fall into a different kind of category, but just in terms of the sheer numbers of talented players right now, I, I think it is sort of a unique situation. I'm wondering if there's maybe one who has caught your eye unexpectedly, possibly someone who going into the season or or maybe a couple seasons ago wasn't on your radar and now you think has the possibility to really make it at the club? That's a good question. And uh, the one thing I would say is that to an extent, the very nature of youth development is that, you know, the, the excitement that you hear about certain names coming through when they're maybe 14, 15, 16, um, is so seldom realized in across the whole of football, across the whole of the, of the world. Mm, when you true. look at the numbers game, they talk about that 99 point whatever percent that don't make it. Um, I'm always slightly uh, in awe. It feels kind of miraculous that, that, that anyone in a sense in today's world of football makes it through to be so impactful um, and, ha- and, and, and exciting and give you that sense that, that they can play now, that they're ready now, and that you hope um, that there's even more potential to come with experience and, and with progression. And I, and, and I agree with you to an extent that when you when you make the comparison with Project Youth, I mean, there's, there's the one very obvious uh, contrast is that Project Youth under Arsene Wenger was in the main quite overseas-based. So the real most exceptional talents that came through whether you know particularly those teenagers at 17 18 like Anelka and Cesc Fabregas and uh, and so on you know we're, we're often recruited from abroad and uh, y- you know you guys in the states will will remember Carlos Vela I remember being tremendously <laughs> excited about Carlos Vela who was regarded at that time as the talent in the whole world and he was from Mexico and they got him to come to London and it seemed so improbable. And, 
he scored these ridiculous trademark lobs every five seconds. Chips and he thought, what yeah. is this guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it never quite happened for him at Arsenal in the way He still managed to hurt Americans uh, on the international He certainly had a, had a great <laughs> career, for sure. But what, what, what I think is more interesting about this group is that it's, you know, obviously Martinelli being, you know, a very big uh, exceptional case. And, of course, Bellerin is more reminiscent of those kids that come over from somewhere at 16, 17 and feel homegrown, even though they're obviously from somewhere else but to have a bunch of Londoners is a really uh, a whole different ball game so when you're talking about uh, particularly in Ketio, Willock and Saka who've all been you know, ingrained in the club from boyhood who've all been going down to Halen since they were seven or eight years old um, uh, not in Ketio slightly because he came from Chelsea a little bit later but mm. there is this generation with Smith Rowe and people like that who've been at the club for a very long time and going through all the age groups and they're they're local lads and so they grow up with it kind of in their blood and under their skin and you just feel uh something a little extra in that situation especially when there's a gang of them and they bond but equally i'm is a really long answer i'm sorry about this no keep going it's great you know when you look at the bond between say saka and martinelli who have known each other for what nine months or something <laughs> and come from completely and utterly different backgrounds is a is a beautiful example of of kind of the the kind of globalized world of football where if people connect doesn't matter where you're from doesn't you know you can make a big song and dance of of one of our own and all that stuff but martinelli still feels kind of like one of arsenal's own which obviously seems ludicrous if he's not even been a year in the club and he's from a different continent but there are vibes going on i think when you have a lot of, of exciting young players because what young players bring is fearlessness and, you know, it seems like a long time ago, but some of us oldies can remember being young and thinking that, you know, everything was exciting and possible. And that's what they embody. But it's hard to do that. It's hard when you're a young player with these pressures and you come in to not take the safety first option and be brave. And that was something Arteta called, of, you know, called out from the Bournemouth game, that bravery, that courage to try stuff. And it, it, it's very exciting when that comes from young players because it's so natural. Yeah, and I think you hit on the point about sort of a group, a collective, and and a collective that's from England and specifically London in some cases, and it, it makes it easier to hold on to them, but also I think gives them a sense of shared ambition, you know, wanting to do something together. And I, I realize it is uh, overstating it to refer back to the United class of 92, but, you know, a great example of a group of youngsters that came through together and achieved great things together as a group. Um, you know, and you don't need every one of them to be superstars. You know, they can be role players. They can be important squad players. I mean, I think also for a club like Arsenal where the finances are under scrutiny and the budget is carefully managed, that when you can develop important squad players even from your academy, you make it a lot easier to rebuild something special. Um, I think you referenced Saka, and he's a really fascinating player to me. He's the one who I think sort of burst onto the scene. Uh, maybe people weren't even aware of him. I'm not a keen academy watcher, and, and it was sort of a surprise to me how precocious his talent was, and now he's sort of doing it at left back, um, uh, ironically, in a season where Arsenal have spent quite a lot of money on a left back. I'm curious to get your take specifically on Saka and whether you think maybe this left back role is something that the club will be interested in getting a closer look at him for, or, or if you still think that his future, uh, and he scored a, a beautiful goal, obviously, uh, in the Cup against Bournemouth just last night, if his future is indeed on that left wing uh, terrorizing defenses and scoring goals. 
I think the beauty of his situation is that that's kind of up in the air at the moment and you feel like either is possible. So that's to his credit. Um, I, I guess circumstances will dictate a little bit and I think this whole experience, the amount of football he's been able to play this season, um, you know, he was promoted, he was one of those promoted early from, you know, there's there's a, almost a rite of passage thing where down at the training ground, there's um, the, the, the one um, side of the, of the facility is all the changing rooms and sort of certain areas concerning the, the, the younger age groups. And then the other side of the facility is the first team. And in between is some of the shared areas like um, the gym and the canteen and restaurant and, you know, other bits and pieces. And I know which part I'd there be is in. A certain, <laughs> well, there is a, it's a big moment for a young player when you've, when you've grown up and you're, you spend, you know, obviously it's a big moment to come through the, the gates Anyway, be that be your base, um, that be where your your learning space is mm. uh, and your development area for football. Um, then you you know you obviously spend a period of time with your own age group on one side of the of, of the facility, and then all of a sudden you say goodbye to some of those guys because you're moving over. It's a, it's a massive thing. It's a massive deal, and and uh, for Saka and Willock in particular, I think these were kids who benefited from you know making strong appearances last season in cameos when they played you know bits and pieces of cup games and so on the time that they spent in the training ground when they were were moving up to train with the first team and um the preseason tours have become a really interesting uh aspect of the development of these guys because it's a it's a time where the the, the, the managers get to take a really close look at a boy's character, at how they integrate with the rest of the team, at how ready they are physically, how ready they are emotionally to, you know, to take that that promotion. Um, and both of them, I think, kind of were always highly rated in the youth systems, but got that kind of nod to maybe go go across full time earlier than than perhaps you know, expected or usual because they made such a big impression in all those bits and pieces of action that they had when they were younger, um, those tasters, if you like. Mm. So that's the way they've taken to it with such ease. It looks like the most natural thing in the world for both of them to step up, to step onto any pitch, any opponent, any teammate, any situation and handle it. And that's what I think is really exciting because they look so like they're, they're, they're just able to absorb their experiences and try and grow from them. And I think Saka is a, in fact, there was a really sweet moment that after the Eintracht Frankfurt game, when uh, I think that was a sort of real explosion moment um, mm. for for Saka in particular, uh, being involved in the goals and um, you know it was like a bit of an announcement moment. And uh, afterwards, we got the chance to chat to him. He was just such a a, a, a sweet, thoughtful. Um, really well-adjusted young, impressive young man uh, coming out to talk to some of the press. And uh, I remember asking him about how it felt, particularly in relation to him and, and Joe Willett, like who, you know, for years and years had been going on the same sort of um, journey, if you don't mind that word, <laughs> together through their football uh, education. And suddenly they're playing in a European match that was scheduled to be quite hostile and quite difficult and they were absolute stars. And he said they, he said there was a moment when they just looked at each other on the pitch, like, oh, as if to say, look where we are, look where we've come. And you took that shared experience when you have, 
you know, a group of young players together, it, it does kind of accelerate that momentum, if you like. Mm. And you, you, you mentioned the class in, in, in 92 and all that. I would maybe arsenalize it a bit further and say, actually, the class of 89 is a really, really good comparison. You'd be the right person to speak had, to about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> funnily enough. But, you know, when that was a really uh, interesting blend between um, the people that, that were external and this young homegrown core. Obviously, they had to have phenomenal talent, which happened to be a great group at the same time. Uh, Tony Adams, Michael Thomas, Paul Merson, uh, David Rocastle, Niall Quinn. There was, you know, there was a, a real exceptional group. Um, and I think that that gave them a kind of extra power that they were all all in it together, having known each other for a very long time. And I think that if the blend is right, and this is what's interesting in terms of how Arsenal evolve from having this exciting young group, um, can they give them the platform and create the right environment around them for them to sort of flourish in the way that everybody would hope? So the, the bits of the jigsaw around them have to be almost perfect. And I'm fascinated to see how Arteta assesses the Arsenal squad as it is now and what it might be if he's allowed to um, bolster it and make some improvements over, you know, windows to come to try and give them the right things around them so that these guys become part of a, a more successful team. Yeah, one of, the, one of the most effective growth hacks you can have in football in terms of trying to shortcut uh, the return to glory, so to speak, is to have players from your academy come through and succeed because – Obviously, you've invested in them, but you don't have to spend big on them. Um, they're easier to tie down on reasonable wages. They're more likely to stay, and you can build around them. And, you know, I think this is this is why it is tricky for Arsenal right now. Raul, I think, was last year gave an interview, and he was very clear about the importance of the academy. And, Amy, I, I just think, you know, we kind of scratched our heads a little when we let Awobi go, although, to be fair, we got a really good fee for him and, and when Mkhitaryan was allowed to, let, uh, to leave. And... On the one hand, there may be some short-term pain that we are experiencing and have experienced as a result of that, but it is incumbent upon the club right now to find a way to be competitive while not blocking the path to first-team football for some of these young players. And that's really tricky, right? Because young players inherently are going to be inconsistent. You're not going to get you know week-in, week-out, top-tier performances from them, but you need to give them playing opportunities. And in a way, if this season, and especially the, the league season, is a blessing uh, in any respect, it's that... Between now and the end of the season, Arteta's sort of free to give a lot of minutes to young players and academy players because there's not a huge amount on the line uh, in the league. And so, you know, maybe that will be uh, a sort of fortuitous way that we're able to develop them and have them continue their their growth into being something special for the first team. Um, you know, just really quickly, you know, we haven't mentioned Reese Nelson. I, I just want to touch on him. I think he's a great example of how we don't necessarily know what the trajectory is going to be for these young players. I think everyone would have agreed that he was the biggest talent in the group a couple of seasons ago. Um, he had sort of a few eye-catching moments uh, in Germany, and I think there was an expectation that he would go to the next level. When Arteta first came in, he was selecting him ahead of Pepe and then uh, picked up an injury and hasn't been in the team as much. Do you still think that he could be sort of one of these really important figures um, from this academy that could step forward and, and fulfill some of the potential? Well, I think that Arteta's faith that he showed in him from the off was was a real kind of signal mm. to Reese Nelson, and what probably in many ways of, of all the players that have come through and that we, we've talked about, 
Reese Nelson's maybe the one who talent-wise, you know, there weren't so many question marks, but there was perhaps a bit more question marks about whether he had all the best attributes to make the best out of his talent. Um, and maybe, uh, you know, it looks like Arteta has seen something in him um, to give to have that trust in him from the get-go. And he's spoken very glowingly about the potential that he feels he has. And it, it's a really, really easy comparison to to make and something that, I think we should all be a bit wary of because although Arteta has witnessed these kind of pl- players flowering um, when he's been at Man City, Raheem Sterling is a, is a perfect example of that. Needing a kid who needed more consistency, who had all the ingredients, um, but, you know, wasn't always getting the right amount of end product that people thought he was capable of, uh, kind of became this fully rounded footballer uh, in that time. But actually kind of observing it and albeit helping out on that process is one thing. Doing it for himself when he's the manager of a club is another one. Mm. Um, and and I think everybody hopes that Arteta can produce on that front and can take some of these young players and and add those finishing touches that are needed to enable them to become the best player that they can be. Um, and yeah, when you look at it like that, of course, Reese Nelson is is... You know, a guy who is completely within that group in every way with um, with Willock and Saka and Nketiah and so on. Interesting that there's so many more forward players than defenders coming through uh, at Arsenal's academy. And it feels like it's been that way for a long time. Mm. Um, you know, it would be in an ideal world, you'd maybe have more of a range of positions. Um, but, you know, there's certainly such uh, exciting uh, potential that if Arteta, as I said before, can help them to realise it and can put the pieces in place around, um, there's no reason to... It's a big leap to be saying, OK, Arsenal are going to make that jump that makes them contenders for the biggest honours, which is obviously what they want to do. There's a, that's a, that's too big a statement and too big a pressure to put on these guys. But can they be a core of a much-improved Arsenal team? I'd like to think so. Yeah, I certainly think so. And I mean, you know, you look at what Arsene Wenger had to go through when he sort of built interesting teams uh, after the Invincibles. I, I think about the 07-08 team and how quickly that team broke up with Flamini leaving and Kleb leaving and Fabregas ultimately leaving. And then he got Nasri and Nasri left. And of course, Adebayor left. Um, you know, the nice thing Fun again. Time, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> was, yeah. And I mean, to be fair, I, I think we deserve a lot of credit and Arsene certainly deserves credit for keeping us relevant through all of that. But you know, maybe it is a case where we have a bit of a hybrid model now where the Ganduzis and the Martinellis don't stay, but the fees they secure allow us to build a really, really powerful team around the guys who do stay, like Saka and Nelson and Willock and, you know, who, whoever else winds up making it. I mean, I, I, I think it's un, unlikely that all of them will prove to be valuable first-team contributors, but... You just need a few plus a few big fees from some of these precocious young talents, and, and suddenly you, you're you in a pretty good position um, that maybe you didn't see coming. So we'll have to keep our fingers crossed for that. Look, I, I can't let you go, Amy, without talking transfers since it's January, um, you know, for the numbers. So, uh, you know, not from an ITK standpoint. I mean, I know you're with The Athletic, and so you are plugged into absolutely everything happening at the club at every single level, um, and you are Ornstein adjacent. But uh, in terms of what we're trying to do right now and, and what the club should be doing, 
I mean, the, the league season is probably a throwaway, but there is an FA Cup quarterfinal at Pompey. Uh, pardon me, FA Cup uh, tie with Pompey that would would put us into the quarterfinal. There's the Europa League, which right. could put us into the Champions League. So there's still things to play for. Um, Mustafi went down with an injury that looked pretty nasty. Rob Holding, to me, still looks like he's a long way off being ready. Uh, it, it's not a great situation at center back, and the, the Mari situation sort of... <laughs> fell apart pretty quickly. It, it seems like maybe we weren't up front with Flamengo about wanting a loan or they changed their mind about it, want it, wanting it to be a loan. I mean, how do you feel about how that situation was handled? Do you, do you think that the club has to try to resurrect that or do something now at center back given the, the situation with Mustafi? Well, considering they needed to do something at center back even before Touché, uh, yeah. Mustafi <laughs> went down, I think that, that you know if, if they did enough that entailed... Um, Edu flying to Brazil and flying back with a centre-back, you know, irrespective of the fact that that did or didn't kind of <laughs> work out just yet. It, it's certainly enormous proof that, um, you know, this is an urgent situation mm. and it would be really negligent, I think, for Arsenal to um, let that one go and let any other possible irons in the fire go out as well. Uh, I think that when you also consider that Saka playing at left back for the period of time that he has done is a massive bonus. And that could have been a huge problem. The fact that, that Arsenal have been without two left backs for quite a lot of this season, um, when you put at the combined uh, absences of uh, Tierney and Kolasinac into the mix and have managed, is pretty remarkable and, and lucky, you know, because it would have been... Not at all surprising had Saka, you know, struggled with it or made some mistakes or found it too much pressure or what have you. And, you know, you can be lucky once. I'm not sure they're going to get lucky again if there's a situation at the back and you've got to have a long-term emergency situation. Uh, there's too much of the season to go and too much to be achieved. And make no mistake, Arsenal, whatever the league table looks like, whatever the realistic situation is, really, 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 really want to get back in the Champions League this season, if at all possible, by any means. Now, to give themselves half a chance, they need a, a team with consistency, they need a team that can pray that somehow they can get a, a, a better run of results and they deserve some better results under Arteta, but actually get them to be coming up the table and suddenly the pressure's on and maybe they might sneak into the... In, into the conversation for fourth mm. or hit that Europa League with the you know, hardest possible attack. Um, so <laughs> if they really are serious they were about that, you, you can't turn around on one hand and say, we really want to get back in the Champions League this, this year, even despite the, <laughs> the chaos and fiasco of quite a lot of the first half of this season and not back the manager with a squad that looks sensible. You can't do that. You can't leave him with like, Two thirty-something centre backs, uh, you know, both of whom have either been injured or suspended at points of the season, and a guy who's coming back from a big injury. You can't. No, you can't be serious. And and I mean, I think um, even I do. I would say that Granit Xhaka is, was a revelation the other day at centre back. Whether he can do that on a longer term basis, I don't know. And uh, maybe that's something that they've got up their sleeve. Um, but the the signs are that if you go and try and bring a player over from Brazil. And it looks, you know, to the point where <laughs> there's photographs and there's video of them coming into the country with a load of bags. Um, 
you, you, you know, they better have a plan B if that it doesn't quite work out for them. Yeah, I mean, look, if for no other reason, Socrates is 31, David Luiz is 32, they can't be playing, you know, two games a week down the entire stretch of the season, right? I mean, you can't you can't ask them to try to win you an FA Cup in a Europa League while playing in the league, and you say, well, maybe they can rotate them out of the league. Well, right now, who would you rotate them for? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, a not ready holding and a, a central midfielder in Shaka are, are your two backup center backs. So I agree, it has to be done. I, I think a lot of people were looking to sort of put the boot into the club with the Paulo Mari thing because it looks like a, another example of Arsenal botching it late. But I... I have questions about that because I think no, but it's not. Well, I think we just have to hang on. It's like wait, just wait till the end of January. I would not put any. I would not be critical until exactly until yeah. the window is closed. Let's wait and see what what works out. Well, and there's a few uh, things, you have right? To trust I mean, them at this point in team in time. I mean, I mean, to me, the idea that we tried to pull one over on them and and lie to them that we we didn't want a loan, and then when we get them to London, say, oh, by the way, it's a loan. I mean. That that doesn't strike me as as plausible. It does strike me as plausible that maybe Flamengo, who's trying to rehabilitate their reputation with their fans, is not being taken advantage of, changed their mind about it. I don't think there's anything wrong with the club wanting it as a loan with an option to buy, given that he is a prime-age center back who's been plying his trade in Brazil and previous to that in the second tier of Spanish football. So, you know, I, I could understand us, you know, wanting that that sort of trial period, but... You know, as you said, let's wait and see how it shakes out. But what I what I do think is clear now is, while our need for a central defender was evident prior to the Mustafi injury, I mean, you certainly don't want to say Mustafi's a guy you're depending on, uh, with all due respect. Now it is it is beyond evident. It is an absolute requirement. The club have to back Arteta because, you know, I, I just don't see how you can um, be a serious club. And as you said, have ser- the, the ambitions you state that you have if you're going to try to go through the rest of the season with two and a half center backs, essentially. So we'll see what happens. I, I have taken up more of your time than was planned, so I, I want to thank you for that. Uh, Amy's on Twitter at AmyLawrence71. Uh, Amy, it is always a pleasure to chat with you, and I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to to talk with us. Pleasure to chat, as always. I don't know who the us was there. Um, I, I, us being the podcast, I am not an us. <laughs> chat, chat with <laughs> That's me. Totally cool. That's totally cool. That's how I interpreted it. It's yeah, totally just, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, that was weird. Anyway, um, so th- that's it. Definitely read Amy's book, 89. It is a fantastic read. It is available at, at greater booksellers everywhere. And if you want to support your local bookstores, that would obviously be a fantastic way to do it. Um, it obviously is about the Arsenal uh, title run in 89. So... That's something worth reading because who knows when the next one will be. In any event, though, we've got a lot more to come. We'll have stuff for patrons the rest of the week. Obviously, uh, if you'd like to sign up, we'd love to have you. But either way, no big deal because we love you for being here anyway. And as we always say, we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. Burnley note.